You can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11, and we're in our message series on the life of Jesus. We're looking at the time Jesus spent on the earth as a man performing miracles, and most importantly, teaching about who he is and what life is all about. And the life of Jesus is documented in four books that we find inside the Bible. Three of these books were written by disciples of Jesus, and the fourth book was written by a physician who was also a historian at the same time. That would be Dr. Luke. And these four books that document the life of Jesus are known as the Gospels, and today we're going to be in the Gospel of John. And as always, you don't have to agree with what I teach today, but I have to teach what I believe based upon careful examination is the truth. If you disagree, I want to encourage you to do your own research and come to your own conclusions, but as always, don't disagree just because you don't like how it makes you feel or how it sounds. Disagree because you've done the research yourself. Take the issue of truth seriously enough to have an informed opinion because we're talking about things like the meaning of life, the nature of reality, whether death is an end or a beginning, whether God exists, and these are issues that deserve our attention and they're ultimately why we're here today. So I'm going to lead us through this text. I'm going to explain as we go so that we can see what this has to say to us today in our context in 2016. And I'll say this in closing, if you've come today and you're in just the summer sort of malaise where everything's chill and you're happy but you're not really expecting God to do anything, just change your mindset right now and expect that God is going to speak to you today. And I promise he will. His word never returns void. Last time we were in this series, Jesus had taught about the relationship between faith and forgiveness. If you missed that message, I encourage you to listen to it online, especially if you're struggling with the issue of forgiveness. This week we're going to encounter one of the greatest miracles ever recorded in Jesus' ministry. It's an amazing event that's going to teach us about the heart and the power and the compassion of Jesus. So let's jump in. Verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. As you may know, Bethany was a town just outside Jerusalem, close enough to be convenient, but far enough away to serve as an escape from the city. And in Bethany lives a family consisting of the sisters Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. And they are friends of Jesus. And I mean real friends, not like friends where it's like, oh, Bob is coming over. Jesus would want us to love him. Not a friend like that. Like a real friend, not a I'm Jesus so everyone is my friend kind of friend. A real friend. Jesus really enjoyed being around them. He enjoyed their company. He found them refreshing to be around. And he would go to Bethany to get out of the city and recharge and be around his friends. Without getting into detail, verse 2 where it talks about Mary is just referring to a future event that's going to take place in the next chapter of John's Gospel. I put the reference on your outline so you can look into that if you want to. And it's there to distinguish this Mary from the other Marys in the Gospels because there are at least three. There's Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's this Mary. And then there's Mary Magdalene. Only one of them was a prostitute. And so details like this are in here so that the other two aren't considered to be prostitutes when they're really in heaven going, was never a prostitute. I'm a different Mary. If you could get that right, I would appreciate it. So that's why the detail is there. Verse 3 now. 
It says, therefore, the sisters, Mary and Martha, sent to him. So they called for Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And the word sick there really means deathly sick. So the idea is Lazarus is dying. So let's go back and just underline that phrase, whom you love, whom you love, because that's important. You can write this on your outlines. One of the first things we notice about Lazarus, the man who is dying, is that Jesus loves him. Jesus loves him. And that's important because Lazarus is going to represent us in this account. Jesus is not with Lazarus, and Lazarus is dying. So write this down as well. Without Jesus, you and I, like Lazarus, are dying. Without Jesus, we too are dying. There's not a single human being, regardless of belief system, who disagrees that our physiological bodies die. Our bodies have an expiration date. But what happens after that? In the realm of important questions, what happens after physical death has to be really close to the top. When you stand before a judge, you are standing before someone who has studied for years in order to understand the moral standards of a country and how they apply to criminal cases. And those moral standards form the legal system. Every society's legal system is supposed to represent the general consensus of that society regarding what behaviors are acceptable and are not acceptable. It's based on the overall moral standard that the group of people in a country agree should be adhered to. So just as we are entitled in our society to have our own Canadian legal system based on our Canadian moral standards, God, too, is entitled to have his own legal system based on his moral standards. In fact, you can make a note of that. God is equally entitled to have his own legal system based on his moral standards. And that's where you and I run into a serious problem because his moral standard is perfection. Because he's unfair? No, because he is perfect. His moral system is a direct reflection of his moral standards. He's perfect. So for him, that's a reasonable standard to have. And when perfection is the standard, you can understand one violation is the same as a million violations. Because you're missing the mark either way. And what we like to do is look around and say, well, I'm ready to stand before a judge one day in eternity because I know I'm better than him. I know I'm better than her, but we forget that that person will not be our judge one day. We won't stand before him or before her. We will stand before God who will judge us according to his moral standard. We love the analogy. It's like having a swimming contest from Vancouver to Hawaii. You might get five miles offshore, 10 miles, and you might look around and go, man, I'm in the top 1%. Like hardly anybody is still going. But what's the point? Nobody's making it to Hawaii. Nobody. We all fall short of God's standard of perfection. Make a note of that. We have all fallen short of God's standard of perfection. And just as we have every right in our system to judge our society's members according to our legal system, just as we have an obligation to punish offenses, so too God has a moral obligation to punish us for violating his legal system. He doesn't do that because he wants to see us suffer. He must punish 
our sin, our violations of his moral standard because he loves justice. Just as we would say it's a miscarriage of justice if a judge says, I don't want to send this guy who murdered five kids to jail. I don't want to see him suffer and I'm a man of compassion. We would say that's a miscarriage of justice. From God's perspective, it would be a miscarriage of justice if he said, "Ah, I'm going to let this liar go. It's not that big of a deal. Because in his moral system, by his standards, it's just as serious as the person murdering children in our society because he's perfect and his standard is perfection. So make a note of this. God loves justice and therefore must punish our violations of his perfect moral standard. He loves justice and therefore must punish our violations of his perfect moral standard. He has to, otherwise he wouldn't be a just God. And the Bible tells us that the punishment waiting for us is death. Not a singular final event, but rather eternal suffering, eternal death, where we will be punished for rejecting God, rebelling against God. That's hell. And that's our, that's our default destination. You don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. But like Lazarus, When we are without Jesus, we are sick and dying. We have an appointment with death that is coming up fast. But also like Lazarus, we have good news. You see, our hope is that Jesus loves us too. We are he whom he loves. We are she whom he loves. Even while we're apart from him, even when we're not with him, wherever you are today in relationship to Jesus, he loves you. He loves you. And today we're going to find out just how much he loves you. Let's read verse 4. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So he's telling them that the end result of everything that's about to happen will not be the death of Lazarus. It won't end like that. The end result is going to be him, Jesus, being glorified. In other words, he's going to do something that's going to make people go, wow, what Jesus has done is amazing. Jesus is incredible. And that's the same plan he has for you and I. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. That seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Very counterintuitive. He finds out he's sick and dying, and his response is, so I'm going to stay exactly where I am. Why? Well, because Lazarus actually is going to die once. In fact, he's going to die before Jesus would have reached him, even if Jesus had left right then. But Jesus really is, shockingly, make a note of this, waiting for Lazarus to die. Jesus is waiting for Lazarus to die. And that may sound cold, but here's the truth. It's very hard to perform surgery on a person who won't admit that they're sick. It's very hard to give medicine to a person who insists that they're healthy. And we so often want a a Jesus aspirin. Just solve this headache in my life, Jesus will say. Just fix this problem, we'll pray. And if Jesus wants to do any more than that, we're not really interested. And we fight him. We resist You cannot receive Jesus in your life. I cannot receive him in my life until we reach the point where we understand that we're sick. We're on a collision course with death and there's nothing we can do to stop it. Until we reach the point where we are willing to see that and admit it, he can't help us. Jesus even said, 
I've not come as a physician for those who are healthy, but for those who are sick. In other words, those who recognize they're sick. For those of us who know and love Jesus and worship him as our Lord and Savior, he's done this in all of us. It's the reason that there's no room for pride in the Christian faith is because to be a Christian, the first step is reaching the point where you say, I need you, Jesus. I'm as good as dead without you. I'm not good enough on my own. That's the first step in becoming a Christian. And so if anybody thinks that Christians are a group of people who get together and think they're better than anyone else, no, no, we get together every Sunday to celebrate that despite the fact that we were not good enough, we found a God who loves us. And we're so thankful for that. And if you haven't reached that point, I know this, Jesus is doing everything he can to get you there. Everything he can. In fact, make a note of this. Jesus loves you so much that he's willing to let the bottom fall out of your life if that's what it's going to take to raise you from the dead. He's willing to let the bottom fall out of your life if that's what it's going to take to raise you from the dead. You see, Lazarus had to die before Jesus could go to work. And you and I have to die to ourselves before Jesus can go to work in us. We have to die to the lie that we can fix ourselves. The Jewish custom in dealing with death was to have a one-month period of mourning. For the first three days, they would actually hire, the family would, professional mourners to mourn and wail loudly and dress in black and lament over the death of their beloved. And then on the fourth day, the family and close friends would be invited to visit with the immediate family and mourn together in a more intimate setting. And we're going to find that Jesus shows up on the fourth day. After all the professional mourning is done, he's gonna show up in the midst of the most intimate mourning over the death of Lazarus. And I don't think that's a mistake, that Jesus shows up when all the ceremony is over. And if you've ever experienced tragedy or or death or loss, you, you know that that first little bit is just a time of busyness. There's a funeral, there's things to attend to, and then all those things stop, and then you have to really confront the the weight of what you're dealing with all of a sudden. And that's the moment when Jesus shows up, and he does the same for us. Verse seven, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And they knew, uh, that's where the Pharisees are, the ones who are trying to kill you. So verse eight, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, Just in case you forgot, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you're going there again? So remember, anytime the Gospel of John uses that phrase, the Jews, it's not referring to the people, the Jews, but to the Jewish religious leadership, those who were conspiring to kill Jesus. Verse 9, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Just to get to the point in a somewhat complicated way, Jesus is saying, I'm the light of the world. Don't worry about the situation. I'm in charge of it. But the disciples, like us most of the time, they just don't get it. So Jesus tries to clue them in by saying, these things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. So Jesus is clearly using the phrase sleep instead of dead, but the disciples still don't get it. And before we laugh at them, I was thinking about this this week. Uh, How often have you found yourself hanging out with someone who says, time to go and raise the dead? 
I think that would be pretty alarming if someone just dropped that that's what we were going to now do. So your brain, just like theirs, begins to search for any other interpretation of what they've just said because he can't actually mean that he's going to go and raise the dead now. Then his disciples said, uh, well, um, if he sleeps, he'll get well. Maybe, maybe, maybe he's not really dying. Maybe Jesus knows somehow that he's just sleeping. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. You know, the longer I walk with the Lord, the more of myself I see in the slow-to-get-it disciples, and the more of myself I see in the stubborn Israelites. You know, when you're a new believer, you read about the Israelites in the Old Testament, and you go like, they're so stupid. God just saved you from, like, Egypt. Don't you get it? And you begin to grow in the Lord, and you begin to realize that you and I do the same thing all the time. Jesus is saying, I'm going to do a miracle here, and the disciples just keep looking for a way to, to downgrade it. Oh, maybe he's not really dead. Maybe he's just sleeping. But Jesus can't mean he's going to raise him from the dead. You know, and we still, when God gives us a promise, how quick are we to, to try and find a way to downgrade it, you know? The Lord will meet all your needs. Yes, yes, I, I know he will. he will. He will give me peace as I die poor under a bridge. He'll meet my needs. No, no, like, like he'll actually meet your need, like food and clothes and money. Well, spiritually, yes. No, like really, literally. We love to do the same thing. We love to downgrade the promises of God because we're thinking he can't, he can't actually do that. I mean, he can do it metaphorically or spiritually, but not literally. And Jesus is trying to tell them, no, he's literally dead and I'm literally going to raise him from the dead because I'm Jesus Christ. That's what I do. And now Jesus says, enough with analogies. Let me be real clear for you. Verse 14, then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And as you read through the gospels and the teachings of Jesus, he is this clear to you and I that we are dead without him. He doesn't want any of us to be confused about the reality of our situation without him. But did you notice that Jesus didn't get a second message? Nobody shows up and tells them that Lazarus is dead. All he's been told is that he's deathly ill. You see, Jesus has been in communication with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And they're the ones who've told him that Lazarus has now died. Okay, now you can go. Verse 15. Jesus says, and I'm glad for your sakes, I'm happy for you disciples, that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. So Jesus says, this is actually good because the end result of what I'm going to do here, disciples, is I'm going to build your faith. And so this is a good thing. This is going to change your understanding of who I am. I'm the son of God and what my ability is to intervene in situations in life. Verse 16, then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. There's two views of what Thomas is saying here, and I don't know which is true, so I'm gonna give them both to you. So the first view is that this is classic doubting Thomas behavior. You know, the same Thomas who, when Jesus appears after his resurrection to the disciples, Thomas is the one who has said, despite all the rumors and all the reports and the other disciples saying they've seen Jesus, Thomas is the one who said, I won't believe him until I put my finger in the hole in his hand and the mark in his side where he was stabbed with the spear. I'm not gonna believe. And he meets him and Jesus says, believe 
Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And so he gets a bad rap for being the last of the disciples to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. So the first view here is that what Thomas is doing is he's being sarcastic and he's being facetious. So Jesus is saying, let us go to Judea. And then Thomas is saying, great, let's go with him so that we can die as well. Apparently, we've all decided to follow a madman. That sort of idea. The second view is that Thomas has an undeservedly bad reputation and that in this case, he's the only disciple who's actually ready to die with Jesus. He's actually saying, let's go. I'm ready to die. Let's go with him. And it could be either. I wish I had a better answer, but I don't. We can ask him in heaven one day. I think if it's the first one, he'll still tell us it was the second one. Oh, yeah, totally the second one. I was, I was being brave. We don't, we don't need to watch the tape. Just take my word for it. So verse 17, it says, So when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. The professional mourner's period has passed, and now it's just friends and close family grieving over Lazarus' death. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. That's in there to give us the threat assessment of the situation and just let us know how close Jesus is to the men who want to kill him. Verse 19, and many of the Jews had joined the woman around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. See, Martha's right and wrong at the same time. She's correct that whatever Jesus asks of God, God will do. But she's missing the fact that she's also talking to God, that Jesus is God. And she doesn't understand that Lazarus has to die before this miracle can take place. You know, the greatest miracle Jesus can ever do in your life has nothing to do with your health or your finances. The greatest miracle Jesus could ever do is saving you from eternal death, saving you from your sins, and bringing you into his family. And so when we say, where are you, Jesus? Maybe what he's really doing is getting you to the place where he can do a miracle. He's there, he's with you, but he's waiting for those things in you to die that are obstacles to him working in your life. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha does what the disciples do. She downgrades the words of Jesus and she says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So your brother will rise again. Yes, Lord, I know, one day in eternity. She thinks Jesus is talking spiritually, but not, not literally. And then Jesus lays out the gospel. This is his message. This is his mission. This is the way to be saved, the way to eternal life. So important. You might want to underline all of this. Verse 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die physically, he shall live eternally. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? In the original language it says, he who believes in me, though he was dead, he shall live and continue to live. When you become a believer in Jesus, the fear of death ends, and, and this is why. Jesus has said to Martha, he said to Lazarus, he said to you and I, if I'm in you, your body might die, but your spirit's gonna live forever. If I'm in you, eternal life begins right now, and death in this life is no longer death. It's simply a promotion to eternity in my presence. Believe in me, and death ends. 
So make a note of this. Where faith in Jesus begins, death ends. Where faith in Jesus begins, death ends. Do you believe this? It's the most important question we will ever answer. Do you believe this? In that moment, in that moment, the Holy Spirit opens Martha's eyes to see that Jesus really is God. And maybe that's happening to you right now. And you can't explain it, but you know in your very spirit, you just know now, man, it's true. It's really true. Jesus is God. Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. This is what it means. This is what it looks like to respond to Jesus, to respond to the gospel. She believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, her Savior, her Savior, the Son of God, period. No small print, no asterisk, no, but there are many other ways to heaven. Just I believe, I believe. You're the one that can save me. Verse 28, and when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she's going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And just like her sister, she doesn't understand that Lazarus dying is the precursor to the miracle. Verse 33, therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. As we read right at the beginning, Jesus loves you right now, right where you are. He, he loves you, and it pains him to watch you suffer. But he's willing to let it happen if the end result will be you being made alive, being rescued from death. He loves you that much. Verse 34, and he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? You see, we keep downgrading the words of Jesus when he gives us a promise about how he's going to take care of us. But then when it comes to doubting him when bad things happen, we elevate everything and we suddenly say, well, this is probably happening because God doesn't care about me or God isn't powerful enough to change this in my life. They don't understand what God is doing. He's doing something bigger than this momentary tragedy. Verse 38, then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Without Jesus, this is the picture of our situation. We are dead and our fate is as sealed as the tomb in which the body of Lazarus lay. And like a massive stone, there's an enormous weight holding us in the place of death that even if we wanted to get out from it, we could not. Make a note of this. The stone trapping us in our tomb is the weight of our sin. It's the weight of our sin. We can't overcome it. We violated God's standard of perfection and now we are trapped and condemned by our own sin and it's only going to be removed so that we can be judged one day. 
condemned and sent to the appropriate punishment, eternal death. That's our situation without Jesus. That's the picture we need to have. There was nothing Lazarus could do to help himself because he was dead. There's nothing he could do to help himself. Verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench for he's been dead for four days. If you have a King James Bible, you're reading my children's favorite verse because it says, he stinketh. My kids love that. Lord, he stinketh. If you have kids, you're familiar with that problem. Without a miracle from Jesus, the first time we would see him would be when we're called to stand before him and be judged and condemned for our sin. That would be the first time we see Jesus. And the stench of our sin would fill the air. There'd be no way to hide it. We would have no excuse before a a holy and perfect God. But you see, Jesus is not afraid of the stench of Lazarus' dead body. And he's not afraid of the stench of our sin. For you see, Jesus is intimately acquainted with sin and death. On the cross, he suffered and died for the sins of every person past, present, and future. He was judged and punished in our place. Everything you saw physically happen to Jesus, the beatings, the scourging, the crucifixion, that was our punishment being poured out upon him because he literally became sin. He literally became our sin. And just as Martha said, what about the stench of death? You might find yourself thinking, I can't have a relationship with Jesus. It's, it's all over me, who I am am, who I've been, what I've done. I I can't have a relationship with God. He, He knows all of that stuff. Here's the deal. Write this down. Jesus is not afraid of our sin because he's already dealt with it. He's already dealt with it. You have no secrets. You have no secrets when it comes to the Lord. And as you grow in the grace of God, you will become more and more impacted by the reality that everything Jesus says in the Bible about loving you, he has said with full knowledge of everything that you will do in your life. He's never going to issue a retraction when he says, I love you. I love you. He's never going to issue a retraction on, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. He knew it all before you were even born, and he loved you knowing it all. And so he stands in front of your tomb, your mess, your brokenness, your dead spirit and mine. And he says, take away the stone, take away the stone. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Despite the dialogue up to this point, it's clear that nobody still has any idea what Jesus is about to do. Verse 41, then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. You know, Lazarus' condition at this time, his condition can only be described as dead. Not dead with potential, just dead, because dead is dead. There's nothing he can do to help himself right now, nothing. He's not stronger than death, and neither are you or I. God doesn't do for us what we can do for ourselves. You know, we still have to brush our teeth in the morning. Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Nowhere in the Bible does it say God helps those who help themselves. That's complete fiction. That's not in the Bible at all. 
You know why? Because the gospel, the good news, is that God helps those who cannot help themselves. That's the gospel. God helps those who cannot help themselves. God helps those who are in hopeless and helpless situations. Those like you and I. That's what the gospel's all about. Now don't miss that this all would have been very dramatic and disturbing. Because nobody is thinking that what's about to happen is Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead. They're just thinking, this is so awkward. This guy's clearly a a friend of the family who thinks he has superpowers, and they're actually going to do it. I mean, can you imagine someone you love has died and passed away, and someone comes to visit, and next thing you know, everyone's over at the cemetery with shovels? That's awkward, right? You're thinking this is... This is going to be really, really awkward when they open the casket. People must have been mortified, but they love Jesus and they, they trust him enough to at least just do what he's saying. Must have been incredibly, incredibly awkward. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. So he's praying out loud. He's speaking audibly for the benefit of the people who are there and for you and I who are reading this today. Verse 43, now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. If you've been with us a while, you know that the reason Jesus specifies Lazarus is because if he hadn't, if he had just said, come forth, every dead person in that cemetery would have come out of their grave. So he has to be specific. Not you. No, you go back. Yeah, you. Yeah, you. You, Lazarus, come forth. So he specifies. The voice that's speaking here, it's the same voice that spoke the universe into being. It's the same voice that speaks to John in Revelation 4.1 and says, come up here. There's power in the words of Jesus. Verse 44, and he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes. I always wonder what that means. Does he shuffle? Does he hop? Because he's like wrapped up in grave clothes. And again, don't just read this like a story. Like put yourself there. Like what's going on? I don't know that people are going like, oh, hallelujah, praise Jesus. I think it's more like, ah, ah, ah. Everyone is just, freaking out because that's what you would do if they dug up the coffin, they take the lid off, and then Aunt May sits up. It's disturbing. It's mind-blowing. And his face was wrapped with a cloth. And the thing I picture is everyone's just freaking out. Nobody's offering an opinion. So Jesus says to them, like, loose him, let him go. Take the stuff off him. Like, this is what you need to do. You see, when you reach the point when you realize that you're dead without Jesus and you cry out to him to be not just your your lucky charm or your problem solver, but to be your savior and Lord, he's going to make you alive. He's going to make you new. He's going to give you a new heart and a new mind. He's going to raise you from death. But when you begin this new life, when you come out of your tomb, you're still going to have grave clothes on. You're still wearing a, a dead man's outfits. You'll still have habits and things in your life that belong in the grave, that belong with your old life, the one that led to death. And Jesus is saying, hey, let's get you out of those. Let's get you out of those. So make a note of this. Over time, 
Jesus brings his new life into every area of our lives. Over time, he brings his new life into every area of our lives. And we just need to know that, that that's the process called sanctification. We're saved, we're justified, we're we're good with God, but sanctification is that process of becoming like Jesus. And one way to think about it, it's that process of getting those grave clothes, those wrappings off your life. And that doesn't happen immediately. And many of us, I think, are still shocked that after walking with the Lord for years, we'll wake up one day and realize, man, I didn't know I still had some of that on me. Or man, I didn't know I was still wearing that old t-shirt, the one I died in, but apparently I still am. It takes time to get out of those things. The Bible says that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. And that same power is going to begin to bring new life to every area of your life. It's going to bring new life into your marriage and your relationships. It's going to bring new life to your mind. It's going to bring new life to your parenting. New life to your dreams and your desires and new life to your future. Scripture says he makes you a new creation and that everything in your life becomes new. And that's what Jesus does when he gives you his new life. But that happens at different speeds and different areas of our lives and for different people among us. But I want to encourage you to let the Lord do that work in your life. He's just getting you out of those old clothing into something much, much better. You're never too far gone. You think you're too far gone? Lazarus was dead. He was dead. That's pretty far gone. There's always hope in Jesus. Always. And here's what's neat about the next chapter of John. John 12. I'll just read it to you. In the next chapter, we're going to find Jesus in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus again. And it will say this. It'll say, then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, lived. And there they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. You see, Lazarus went from being dead in a tomb to sitting at the table with Jesus. And God's word tells us that we've been invited to. And Jesus wants to know if we want to accept his invitation to be born again, to be raised from the dead, and ultimately sit at his table in eternity. Now this miracle at its core is is really about death. It's about the effects of death, the pain of death, and Jesus' power over death. All things that apply deeply and personally to you and I. But the first thing that strikes me is the interaction when Martha comes out to meet Jesus and then brings her sister Mary to him. Both of them have the same raw, heartbroken, devastated reaction to their brother's death. And I, I imagine both of them running up to him and and just pounding on his chest like a child while tears fall down their faces and they're screaming, if you had been here, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Why weren't you here? They both say that when they encounter Jesus and they embody a feeling that many of us have when it comes to death. Have you ever lost someone close to you or known someone who has and you're just deeply filled with the sense that it's so wrong It's just just wrong. It shouldn't be like this. You know, there's something about death that feels wrong to all of us, even when it's old age. There's a tragedy to the reality that just as we begin to understand what life is really all about, just as we begin to have some actual wisdom and insight, our bodies betray us, break down, and we eventually die. And I think that we all feel that with death, there's something 
profoundly wrong, even though we're told over and over again it's a normal part of life. And I think that's because it wasn't meant to be a normal part of life. And we all feel that deep down. The Bible makes it clear that death only exists because of sin, because of us rejecting God. And the staggering truth is that Adam and Eve and you and I, we were never intended to experience death. That wasn't the plan. That wasn't God's design. That's why it feels so wrong, because it is wrong. When they chose to disobey God, they did what all of us have done. The Bible says we've all gone astray and rejected God. But the world before sin was amazing. There's no death, there's no pain, there's no decay. And when sin entered the world, it affected everything, and everything began to decay. Not just our spirits, but the whole world. We became corrupted in our thinking, in our genetics, in our emotions, in our relationship, in every way. But worst of all, our relationship with God was severed. And when we rejected him, we destroyed that relationship. And when the standard is perfection, you can't ever get back to it. And I just say this again. If you ever think, man, that seems a little bit harsh, what you're really saying is, I don't think it's that big of a deal to reject God, our creator, the Lord of the universe. I don't think it's that big of a deal. Which is like saying, I don't think God is that big of a deal. So I don't think rejecting him is all that big of a problem. It's a big deal. It's the most serious crime we could ever commit, and we've all committed it. When Mary and Martha come up to Jesus protesting the fact that their brother is dead, what they're really saying is, it shouldn't be like this. It shouldn't be like this. If God is good, why is this happening? Have you ever felt like that? How many of us have had things in our past or even experiencing things in our present that make us want to shout at God, where were you? Where were you? If you were here, none of this would be happening. And we forget that if we want to know what God's design is like, we don't get to look around today because this is not God's design. This is our messed up version of God's design. God's design exists in the Bible all the way at the beginning before we sinned and all the way at the end when God puts everything back again. But we are not in either of those two places right now. And so we don't get to look around at the mess we've made of the world and then ask God why these things are happening. Because the answer is because of us. We did it and we continue to do it. We're in that space in between experiencing the consequences of our sin as a species. It means that when we experience death and injustice and pain and suffering, we should weep. We should mourn, but instead of claiming that God is not good, we should be deeply grieved and humbled by the fruit of our own actions, of our own sin, because we're all responsible. We've all done our part, and the world around us bears witness 24-7, 365, that we need a Savior. We need a Savior. This is not the world that Jesus made. This is the world we created after we rejected his. And the first step in solving any problem is figuring out what the problem is. And the problem's not God. The problem is us. And some of us need to stop being angry at God and need to start being broken over our sin instead and what we've brought into our own lives by our part in this. And out of that comes a deep gratitude that God didn't leave us in that place. Because it's into this broken world that Jesus came in the form of a man to walk in our shoes, 
Do you ever think that Jesus came to experience all the consequences of our sin? Our sin, not his. Our sin. He would have been justified in just saying, good riddance, reap what you've sown. I'll just start the experiment again, and I'll write about you guys in the Bible so that the next people have an example of what not to do. But he didn't. He didn't do that. He came to us, and he's with us. He's here now. I find it staggering that Jesus knows he's going to heal Lazarus, but he still weeps. Why? Why isn't he like, calm down, just give it five minutes, we'll see what happens. I believe it's because Jesus is being confronted by the effects of sin on his creation. You know, he knows what it was meant to be. And he's, he's just crushed by the difference between how it should be and what it is. He's witnessing firsthand the awful power of sin in the body of his friend Lazarus. And he's surrounded by the weeping and mourning, the, the devastation of sin on his people. But Jesus doesn't say, I told you so. This is why you shouldn't reject me. He's full of compassion. And more than that, he's there. He's entered into our suffering with us. And every now and then we just need to stop and just go, who, who does that? What kind of a God does that, steps into our mess and our suffering and lives in it? Lives in it. So that he can really say to us with integrity, I, I know what you're going through. I know what loneliness is. I know what pain is. I, I know what hurt is. I know because I've been through it. In a body like yours, I've been through it. He's the son of man, but he's able to sympathize with our struggles. But praise God, he's also the son of God, so he's able to actually help us. And when it says that Jesus groaned, the original Greek word is kind of strange. It's a word used to describe a horse that's snorting angrily. It means distress to an extreme degree or violent displeasure. And so he's not only broken about the effects of sin, but Jesus is angry. He's deeply disturbed. He's in incredible distress. And if you're not a believer this morning, you need to know that Jesus is in great distress over your situation. You're under the power of sin and death. You're in the grave whether you realize it or not. And like Lazarus, there's nothing you can do to help yourself. You cannot bring yourself from death to life because you're guilty of rejecting God. You're guilty. You, you did it. I did it. But the good news is that he loves you. He loves you. Just as Lazarus was he whom he loved, you too are he whom Jesus loves, she whom Jesus loves. Your only hope is that Jesus loves you. And because he loves you, he's in violent displeasure over your condition. How violent is his displeasure? Well, so violent he would shed his blood for you. So violent he was beaten for you. So violent that he died for you. And so violent that he was judged in your place almost 2,000 years ago. Let me tell you what happened. Around 2,000 years ago, you were found guilty. And you were punished Except Jesus stood in your place and said, put it on me. Put it on me. All of his sins, all of her sins, past, present, and future, put them on me. And he died for you. So now when you stand before the Father, when you stand before the Lord, you can be blameless. You can meet that standard of perfection. You can be without sin. You can step into the incredible future God has for you. You can have that relationship with God that you were meant to have from the moment you were born and created. If you will believe Jesus, 
when he says, I've done it for you. If you will answer his question, do you believe this? With yes, I I believe, I believe. If the story had ended with Jesus on the cross, it would mean that sin still ended in death. But after three days, Jesus rose from the dead, and when he did, it was a declaration to the universe that death is not greater than the power of Jesus. And the life that is in Jesus is stronger than the grave. And this is the life that he says, I will put in you if you'll accept it. It's stronger than the grave. When the apostle John received his revelation on the island of Patmos where he was cast away in punishment by the Romans, he saw Jesus and he wrote this. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying to me, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. And so each of us at some point will find ourselves in Lazarus' place. In our sin, trapped in the grave, under a death sentence because sin is in our spiritual genetics. Jesus has died for all of us, for all our sin. And here's the good news. He stands outside the grave and says, come out. He says, leave death and step into life through me. It's the grace of God that we ever have the chance to hear his voice. But here you are. Here I am. We're doing just that, hearing the voice of Jesus. And every single one of us will make a choice in life to remain in the grave or step out into that new life. And if you want to leave death, it means acknowledging the one who's calling you out of death and into new life. It means recognizing Jesus as your Savior and then actually living your life as though you believe that, that he really is your Savior. It doesn't mean that you become a perfect person overnight or that you're not dealing with those grave clothes, those issues for the rest of your life as he works out sanctification in you. It means that you now belong to Jesus completely. And he becomes everything. Because that's the response the Savior deserves. So either today you're in one of two places. You're trapped in your tomb by the weight of your own sin, awaiting judgment by a perfect God for a crime of which you are guilty. Or you're walking out the grave as Jesus calls your name. And you're walking into new and everlasting life. There's no middle state. You're either dying or you're being made new. You're in one of those two places. And Jesus says to you and I, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for the gospel. God, we we never get over it. We just can't get over it. As we grow more in you and see ourselves and you more clearly in your word. Lord, we understand just how hopeless our situation is without you. But Lord, your response to us is something no one could have expected. Just as no one expected Lazarus to come back to life and walk out of that tomb, who would have expected that when we were dead in our sins, the Son of God would leave the glory of heaven and step into a human vessel, a human body, to experience the consequences of our sin. Not only on the cross and not only in 
the day leading up to the cross, but a life lived being considered illegitimate, being scorned and mocked, neglected, abused, a ministry where people would not believe him, but plotted to kill him, rejected by those he considered his own brothers. Lord, that you would come down and do that. Who could have seen that coming? And so we pause again this morning just to be filled with wonder at the way you've loved us. At the ending you wrote for our story, it's not the way it should have ended. But because you love us, because we are he whom you love, she whom you love, you change how our story ends forever. And we are so thankful, Jesus, that you came and you stepped into our mess so that we could know you and have new life. Lord, may we never take it for granted. And then I also just feel compelled this morning just to encourage you. If you are just aware, man, I am just dealing with some of these grave clothes, these things that I thought I was long done with, but I'm seeing, I still got some junk I'm working through. Just know this morning that Jesus loves you. As much as he was faithful to pull you out of the grave, he's faithful to walk with you every day through the Holy Spirit as those clothes of death slowly come off. He's faithful to peel them off you. Even as you resist, even as you and I are slow to embrace the process, he's not going to abandon you. He's not going to give up on you. He's going to keep walking with you till that moment arrives when you're in the presence of Jesus and that process is completed. He's with you. He's never going to leave. He's never going to forsake you. As many times as you have to try, he's up for it. He's with you in that. He loves you. He loves you so much. Father, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for your kindness. We're in awe of your goodness to us, and we're so thankful for your salvation. We love you, Jesus. It's in your mighty name we pray this morning. Amen. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. 
Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.